you analyze, you react to everything in a completely different way because it empowers you. Instead yes. of like, I'm feeling like this, I've got brain fog, I've got headaches, I've got, you know, I'm getting all these hot flashes, I can't sleep, I'm putting on weight, mm-hmm. you know. That's very disempowering, you know, if it's because of the menopause. But if you feel like these are biofeedback from my body about what I need to do for the rest of my life, then it's completely different. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm Maya Acosta, and I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Maya Acosta. And today I have Jane Thurnell Reed. She's an independent author, blogger, and trustee. She writes about health and well-being with a focus on positive lifestyle solutions. She's in her 70s and loves inspiring others. She enjoys lifting weights in the gym, riding her bike, and eating healthily, I hope I said that right, with a dusting of vegan chocolate. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. You know, I'm familiar with two of the books that you wrote recently. And I, as soon as I saw the titles, I said, my female listeners are going to enjoy this conversation. Yeah. It's the start of the new year. And as you know, people set goals. And it's always, I think, for everyone on the list, there's the weight loss goal or even just getting more exercise this year. So I hope that we can talk about that and why maybe setting goals does not necessarily, they don't always work, the goals. I think we have to have a system in place. At least I've been listening to the Atomic Habits book. (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar with that one. And I know you also talk about menopause, which is also a huge topic that I'm very interested in. So I'm hoping we can talk about both. But let's learn Mm. a little bit about yourself. You're in your 70s and you didn't really start to exercise till you were in your 60s. And I want you to know that's like an inspiration for me because I'm in my early 50s. I've never been in the gym. I have been, but I'm not. I've never been consistent. Yeah. You inspire me, and that's part of one of my goals, you inspire me to get fit and lift weights. How did you get to that point? Tell us a little bit about how your journey towards building, um, exercising and doing all that you do now. How did all that get started? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people often assume that I've been fit all my life, but as you say, it's not true. I hated sport at school, absolutely hated it. In my 20s, I went to the gym a little bit and I did a bit of swimming. But I mean, when I went to the gym, I'd be talking to everyone. Anything I found a bit difficult, I didn't do. So I only did the exercises I liked. I didn't push myself. So I didn't get very far with that. In my 40s, I met my partner and actually started cycling and did some long distance cycling. But it wasn't until I was in my early 60s, when a cycling friend of mine said to me, Jane, you should come to the gym. You'll love it. And I went, no, I'm too old. <laughs> and, she, and she said, you know, you really would love it. And I went, no, Katie, I wouldn't. I would hate it. I would hate it. I'm much too old to go to the gym. 
But she kept on persisting, and in the end I said, oh, okay, right, Katie, I'll go, but I'm not going to enjoy it. It'll be horrible. And I went and I was absolutely, absolutely amazed at how much I actually did enjoy it. And, you know, now, I mean, in my 70s, going to the gym is a really, really important part of what I do. I feel I feel like I've got a gym family because I know lots of people in the gym and they say, hello, Jane, how are you? How's your training going? That sort of thing. I see it as being just so, so important in in terms of overall health, in terms of mental health, in terms of getting older. It's just so, so important that we exercise and, and particularly for women. You know, strength training is really, really important for women. Okay, so are you considered like a gym rat? Is there such a term? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, I am. I am considered a gym rat. Somebody described me as a gym bunny, but I feel a bit old to be a gym oh, bunny. <laughs> that's a cute name. I love that. I don't even like the term gym rat. I just thought I'd throw that out there. So, Jane, let's start from the beginning for someone, say, like myself, who really shies away from going to the gym. I really do. Now, you mentioned cycling. So I love to cycle. I love to hike. I love being outdoors. I love power walking. I'm very active that way. Yeah. But I'm highly, highly intimidated by gyms, especially the gyms where you can hear the men weightlifting and they're like, ah, you know. <laughs> and um, my husband at Some one point. Some of those men are amazing. The gym I go to now, which wasn't the gym I first went to in my 60s, has a lot of these big, powerful men, you know, sort of walking around like this because they've got so much muscle and stuff. And But they are lovely. They are just so nice because I think they have nothing to prove, these very big men. You know, they don't have to prove that they're masculine, fit, strong. And so they are, on the whole, incredibly gentle, incredibly considerate. They're the opposite of what you expect them to be. Okay, that's comforting. Um, (laughs) So let me ask you, how does one get started in the gym when they're going for the first time? Do we hire a personal trainer? Do we ask a friend to join us? Or do we just kind of go and just try to even figure out the equipment on our own? Yeah. I mean, going with a friend obviously has, has a lot going for it. I mean, you know, a lot of women find that much better if there's two of them. The problem, though, with it, and I see this over and over again in the gym, is that two friends or two sisters will go to the gym together. They spend most of their time chatting while they're exercising. So they're lifting weights, but they're chatting to each other. And actually, they're not working out. And what happens is after a while, it's very boring because you're not seeing any improvement because you'll only see an improvement if you challenge yourself. And if you want to challenge yourself, you've got to concentrate. You know, you can't, you can't really talk if you're working out hard because you've got to concentrate on what you're doing. So though I understand why people often go with someone else, I actually don't really recommend it as a, as a thing to do. If you can afford it, I think it's great to work with a personal trainer Maybe the first time you go, you can ask the personal trainer if they'll meet you outside the gym in the car park so that they walk in with you. I mean, that's something you could do. Say, you know, I'm really nervous, so would you come 
outside the gym and, and then go in with me that first time or the first two or three times maybe even. So if you can afford a personal trainer, I would definitely recommend that you get one. Things to look out for are that you want somebody who's going to encourage you. So you want somebody that you feel will be empathetic. But what you don't want is somebody who's going to go, oh, are you tired today? Oh, well, we won't do very much. And you want somebody who's going to be there watching what you do. Because particularly when you start, you need to make sure you have good form and that you're doing the things correctly. Mm -hmm. So if possible, I would really recommend that. If you can't afford to do that, there's lots of videos. YouTube has lots and lots of videos about exercise routines you can do and how best to do them. So you could find one of those okay. and, and use one of those. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think in terms of gyms, I live in the UK, but what it seems to me is that if you want a friendly gym, you need to go to an independent gym. If you're not so worried about that, then maybe go to a chain. I mean, they're often cheaper, a, cha a chain of gyms. But often there isn't a lot of soul in the gym. You know, it's, a, it's about making money. So people come along, do the exercise. You know, people put their headphones on. Nobody speaks to anybody. I mean, that works for some people. For me, that's, that would be horrible. You know, I like, you know, I mean, if I go away on holiday, people will go, where have you been? I haven't seen you. You know, all these people in the gym, they notice when I'm not there, which is really, really nice. So I, I definitely recommend finding an independent gym, you know, yeah. with, with an owner there who really cares about yeah. the customers, all the customers. It sounds like you build a sense of community over time, uh, yeah. the more that you go. Almost that place where everybody knows your name. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Rather than the bar, it's the gym. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. So I'll share with you briefly that my husband had a little bit of training. Most of his life, he's been in shape and he had gone through this intensive program before I met him. And then early on, he trained me a little bit at our local gym where he taught me how to use the various machines and be done in half an hour, just to the point. He And what he told me back then was that the reason that people don't get in shape is because they spend, you know, they'll do, and I, you'll have to give me some of the terms, but, you know, they'll do a round of whatever it may be on a machine and then spend five to 15 minutes just texting and playing yeah, on the phone yeah, rather than yeah, absolutely. going, you know, back to back, back to back from one machine to the other. So he trained me to do that along with some sit-ups and planks and a little bit of cardio work. And I think we started with cardio work and then did the machines to get the optimal benefit of the exercise. So if you want to go through some of those things, I would also love to know how was it when you first got started? What did it look like? And where are you today in your 70s with your uh, routine? I'm actually stronger than I was in my 60s. I mean, I'm still getting stronger and stronger. And that's an absolutely, totally and utterly crazy, amazing feeling. You know, when all around me, there are women who are getting less, less strong, more fragile, more dependent on other people. And me, I'm getting stronger and stronger. When I first started, I started with machines, you know, the machines in the gym. The problem with that long term is that the machines, you don't pick up the differences between the two sides of your body so easily. 
if you're doing something where you're pulling, like pulling something down, yeah. If you if you're using a machine, then you could have one arm that's working really hard and the other one's just sort of trailing along, right? Yes. So your strong arm gets stronger. Your weak arm stays less strong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Though I think when you start using machines is really, really good, but there comes a point when you need, need to use what's called free weights. So free weights are like dumbbells, uh, kettlebells, yeah, bags yeah. and that sort of thing. So now I hardly ever use machines. I'm always using free weights or I'm doing single leg or single arm exercises so standing on one leg and then holding a dumbbell and going like that while I'm standing on yeah. one leg that sort of thing you know it's really it's really strengthening you strengthening your core and making it less likely that you'll fall mm -hmm. some work from one of the Australian universities is that they say strength training is protective against dementia and given how much people are frightened and worried about getting dementia, they're saying it should be an important part of anybody's strategy for preventing dementia is that you do strength training. You know, it's not all about looking beautiful. It's about the physiology, the functioning of your body and of your mind and your brain. Mm. Absolutely. And that's exactly why I wanted you on the podcast, because <laughs> many times we focus on appearance. So getting beach body ready, wanting to fit into a certain size. We focus so much on the physical appearance of getting in shape and losing weight without understanding exactly what you're talking about, the using the exercise and especially building muscle as medicine, but also as a preventative measure. So you mentioned dementia, also the falling, preventing falling, so working on our balance, and then you cover menopause. So mm. tell us how, you know, exercise and especially weightlifting can help us as we go through menopause. Well, I mean, one of the big things, obviously, is people are worried about osteoporosis, um, particularly, you know, as they become menopausal and then, and then postmenopausal. And weight training is really important for that. It can really help strengthen the bones. I'm, I'm always in a hurry and I've had some pretty bad falls from time to time. I mean, generally now I don't fall because I, I, one of the things, if you do a lot of weight training, is that if you stumble, you get yourself back up again, really. Your body instinctively knows. It doesn't go through the brain anymore. It's like your body goes, oh, I've killed it, and just whips you back up rather than you stumbling, falling, and risking breaking your hips or your wrist or whatever. So weight training is really, really important for strengthening bones. It's also muscle takes more calories so if, uh, than fat. So if, if you build your muscles using strength training and you are not going to look like a man, <laughs> you know, people worry about, oh, I don't want to look too big. You won't. In fact, what tends to happen is that often women actually look smaller even if they're not and part of that is because they st you start to develop your shoulders and a lot of women are you know big hips smaller shoulders if you start to develop your shoulders more then your hips look more in proportion 
Yeah. So it's the, you know, you're building the muscle there that you need anyway. And it helps your body to see much more in proportion. So, so that's a great thing. But the really important thing about from a weight point of view is that if you're sitting around watching the television and you've got 10 pounds of muscle, so you're not doing anything, your body's at rest, it will use more calories than 10 pounds of, if you have 10 pounds of fat. Oh. So just to maintain your body, you will need more calories if you've got muscle. Mm-hmm. So that then makes weight maintenance much easier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, speaking of falls, I had a fall in 2020. And I will probably say that's the first fall that I've had as I'm aging. In other yeah. words, the other falls when I was younger didn't count. <laughs> they didn't count because I didn't have the injuries that I had in 2020. And so at the time, we did work out a little bit that summer as a lot of people were staying at home. But I, it was in the fall. Lots of things were happening the holidays. And had I had an exercise routine, I probably would not have ended up with a frozen shoulder which is a result of not moving the arm because of the injury. It, it ended yeah, yeah. up being such a fiasco that I realized, wow, I'm at that phase in my life where what I do from this point on is either going to improve the quality of life as I age or I'm going to be more and more debilitated. The falls and the injuries will get worse. And I still have pain in my shoulder. So I ended up going through a little bit of a rehab, a in terms of exercising my arm. But again, even after an injury and uh, you discover what you can or cannot do, depending on what your doctor tells you, I mean, it just can help you recover more easily if you continue an exercise routine. Yeah, And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I just never understood how important it is to prevent falls. It's not really until you start to enter that age that you realize, wow, I can have severe I mean, the, injuries. The, the, figures are, the figures are absolutely horrific. It's something like almost half of people over, over 65 are afraid of falling. Wow. That's scary. Almost half. Yeah. And the more being afraid of falling almost doubles your chances of actually falling. Wow. You know, because you're, you're anxious. So you're like, Oh, I might fall. I might fall. And because you feel like that, of course, you're much more likely to fall because you, you're agitated. Sure. So it's really, you know, strength training is really, really important for that because what happens if you start to be afraid of falling, then you start to not want to go to new places because you don't, you know, there may be stairs. Or the, or the ground may be uneven. So you think, Oh, I don't, maybe I won't go. Maybe I won't go. And your world becomes smaller. And I, th- I think one of the things that strength training does is it helps you keep your, your world big, you know, really, really big. Mm. So, you know, people see it as vanity or something optional. It's not, it's really, really an important central thing of, of what we should be doing, all of us. That's such a significant thing, though, what you just said, because I had never thought about how limited I would be. I'm I'm just really thinking about that. That's profound that my world could get smaller if I fear falling and also just fear not being able to complete something like, for example, a hike where I say I can't do this because I'm not in shape. So I have to turn around or be carried out or whatever it may be. (laughs) You start to lose your independence, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, gyms are full of young people. They should be full of old people. You know, there should be every single old person should be in the gym. You know, I whereas- love that. I love that. I, you know, that reminds me of a conversation that I had um, a long time ago when I went to one of the lifestyle medicine conferences and attended the exercise as medicine lecture. And the individual that was giving that lecture said that every physical therapist should be knocking on the doctor's doors, just like pharmaceutical reps and yeah. saying, I have something that can help your patients. And why is it that Physicians are not recommending that their patients go to the gym. What, why do we have that mental block? I don't know if you can tell us about that. Well, I, th- I mean, I think I think people are frightened of recommending it because it may, uh, you know, they they they're worried that it may harm people. But I mean, strength training, resistance training, working out, whatever you want to call it, has been shown to be beneficial for people with osteoarthritis. You know, one time the idea was if you have osteoarthritis, you should rest. That idea has now been completely debunked by so much research, huge amounts of research. So if you've got osteoarthritis, you should be working out. In in the UK last year, there was a big position statement about around osteoporosis from all sorts of doctors, from major uh, medical charities involved with osteoporosis, and they and they came up with this what they called big position paper, and every single category of person should be doing some strength training. They said it's preventive. But even people who already have stress fractures because of osteoporosis should still be doing strength training. Obviously, not the same, not at the same level, but they say it's absolutely beneficial for everybody. There's been research on cancer. It's for some cancers, it's preventative. It's been shown that for, for a lot of people, even while they're having cancer treatment, if they do strength training, they will have fewer side effects from the, the treatment and just generally feel better. It's mm-hmm. been shown to be beneficial for mental health. Yeah. You know, there's so, there's so much. Yeah. And what, why is it not enough? Because earlier you said, not that it's not enough what you just said. I wanted to go back to the point that you made early that you met your partner and at that time you were interested in cycling and then your partner said, let's go to the gym. And so I have heard that, you know, like I said, I like being outdoors, but exercising in terms of just running or walking or cycling is not enough for us as we're aging. Why the strength training? And we talked a little bit about free weights and dumbbells and all of that, but can you give us a little bit more detail of what strength training looks like and how much should we be lifting? Okay, so strength training is where, I mean, sometimes you can be just using body weight, but generally you're using actual weights of some sort or another. And it's also called resistance training. So you're, you know, the weight is resisting what you're trying to do. Yeah. And so you're actually working. So in terms of you need to be thinking about doing, you know, running exercises your lower legs, for example, or hiking or power walk, is exercising your lower legs. It's building strength in your legs, sorry, in your legs, lower body, I mean. So it's building strength in your legs, yeah? But walking is 
you're doing the same movement all the time. So it's not, it's only building the strength in one type of, just in one way, yeah? Because you're mm-hmm. just doing this or this, 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 this yeah. over and over again. It's not building your upper body. People who use poles, that's beneficial for the upper body. But again, the problem with it is you're just doing that one movement over and over again. But, you know, your shoulder, you can sort of do all sorts of things with your shoulders, yeah? But if you're using poles, you're just doing this one movement over and over again. You're not using the full range of what your body's able to do. Mm-hmm. So you really need to be thinking about that to, to be doing everything that, you know, exercising the whole of the body. Right. And what you usually would do is what's called sets, what you referred to earlier as rounds. But I think in the US, I think we also call them sets. Yeah. So you do, say, the same exercise eight or 10 times, and then you might do two or three sets with a pause in between. So you do eight or 10, have a pause, eight or 10 again, have a pause, eight or 10 again, and then have a rest, right? And the last one you do should be quite difficult to do. So the last, so if you're doing 10, three sets of 10, number 10 in each set should be, oh, it's a bit difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a bit difficult as you do it. <laughs> yeah, you should be able to do it, but it should be difficult. And then you can rest between 30 seconds and two minutes between sets. I mean, two minutes would be if you're lifting very, very, very heavy weights at your maximum, you know, really working to your maximum. But you need to push yourself to see the improvement. Yeah. Yes. And then you would do another thing, another series. So you do three, say, th- usually three sets, eight or 10. The 10th one is always the one that's a bit difficult. Like, so you feel like I've done 10, but I don't think I could do 11. So that, de- that determines how, how heavy your weight is. You know, cause if you do 10 and it's like, Oh, I could have done 15. The weight's too light. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so you do the, you should be just be able to do the 10, but not be able to do the 11th, a little rest, and then you can do another 10, and the same thing should happen. You couldn't do the 11th. Yeah. And that's yeah. how you gauge whether your weights are, are heavy enough for you. And one of the great things about when you start is if you work like that, you will see improvement, and you improve really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, you just, you'll you'll go, oh, you know, a month ago, I couldn't, you know, this was seemed like really quite, quite a lot. And now I pick it up and it's like, why would I exercise with this? It's too light, you know. Right. I remember really well the first time I lifted up a five kilo weight and put it back on the rack, on the weight rack. So five kilos is about 11 pounds. And And then the left-hand one I couldn't do. I had to use both of my hands to get that one up. And and now, you know, five. I hardly ever use five kilos. It's, you know, for anything, it's just too light. I wouldn't think about using it. So what are you lifting now? Well, it depends on what exercise I'm doing. I mean, when I deadlift, which is where you've got a bar, with plates on it and you pick it up pick it up from the ground and stand up straight and that is 60 
this week I did 62 and a half kilos for five, which is, <laughs> I mean, must be about 140 pounds. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, overhead, maybe 10, 12 kilos overhead. That's um, incredible. And so on and so on. Yeah. Oh. My goodness, that's amazing. Congratulations on that. And it's only been, what would you say, oh, about over 10 years, a little over, so 10, over 10 years? Ye- yeah, it's about yeah. 12 probably. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, I've had setbacks. I've had time when I haven't been able to get to the gym. You know, family things have happened. We've had lockdowns. There's been all sorts of, you know, with the pandemic, there's been all sorts yes. of things happened. So yeah. I remember, especially in 2020, when people had less access to the the gyms, mm. but not only that, access to dumbbells when they wanted to order some of those. Yeah, the, you couldn't order the them, could you? You couldn't. <laughs> At one time, they were like gold if you could have yes. access to those. That's incredible. So let's talk a little bit about your book on menopause. Mm. And I Mm. know that, you know, I've listened to you on other podcasts. And um, one thing that really stood out that I said, I definitely want to point this out is um, there are myths associated with menopause. um, One of them being, you know, that we believe we have to experience all those complications associated with menopause. We're just bound to have those ailments that bother us a lot. And the other one is weight gain. So I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about that. Should we expect weight gain when we go through menopause and what can we do about it? Okay, so I, I, I mean, the, just in general, people, I think women assume that any symptom that starts mm-hmm. while they're peri- perimenopausal, menopausal, postmenopausal has to be caused by the menopause. You know, but people develop asthma at 35 or at, you know, eczema or something, or they start to feel tired a lot. And if you're 35 or 40, you go, why am I feeling tired? What's what's wrong? You know, what have I done? Maybe I'll go and see somebody. But, you know, by the time people are perimenopausal or menopausal, they start to say, oh, I'm getting these dreadful headaches, you know, because of the menopause. And often they feel they can't do anything about it. Whereas if it's happened any other time of their life, they would say, you know, I've started getting headaches. Why am I getting headaches? And they might think, actually, you know, I'm drinking too much alcohol. That's what's happening. You know, I've upped the amount of alcohol I'm drinking. No wonder I'm getting all these headaches. They're actually not headaches. They're hangovers, you know, that sort of <laughs> that sort of thing. But because it happens at that time of the, of the perimenopause, menopause, the women go, oh, it's the menopause. So I can't do anything about it. And that's one of the real dangers, I think, is that if people believe that any symptom they develop between, I don't know, 40 and 55 has to be caused by the menopause, then, you know, they don't do anything about it. Or they get put on HRT and HRT, like all drugs, does have a placebo effect as well. No matter how effective a drug is, there is also a placebo effect. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Even if it makes your headaches go away, it could actually be down to the menopause. I was talking to somebody in the gym recently about, and she kept on saying to me, oh, this bloody menopause. And I said, what's wrong? She said, oh, I keep on getting these dreadful headaches with it. And I just feel awful and I'm tired all the time and so on and so on and so on. And then a few weeks later, she said, do you know, she said, I gave up alcohol. I realized how much I was drinking. And she said, I said, I've I decided I cut it out completely. And she said, all those menopausal symptoms are gone. 
It was nothing to do with the menopause. It was the amount of alcohol she was drinking in her case. I mean, I'm using alcohol as an ex- as an example. Obviously, it's not that way for everyone. You know, so I think the first thing is don't assume that a new symptom or a symptom getting worse has to be down to the menopause. A lot of women complain about not being able to sleep very well during the menopause, but the researchers have found the best prediction of who will sleep badly during the menopause is the women who were sleeping badly before. So, you know, you've been sleeping badly for years and now now you're in the menopause, you blame the menopause, but mm-hmm. actually you've always been sleeping badly, maybe because, you know, you have poor sleep hygiene, maybe because you are extremely angry a lot of the time with your partner, so can't sleep, maybe you're anxious. So you need to think about these things and not just immediately blame the menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, and the weight loss the very interesting study done one of the Australian universities, which I can't remember which one and I can't remember the reference, but if anybody wants to know, I can let them have that. And they looked at women who had, it was natu- natural menopause, so not surgical menopause. And they looked at women who had an early menopause, normal time of menopause or a late menopause. And they followed them over this time. And what they found was that they all put weight on around the same, or those that put weight on, put weight on around the same time, the same age, not the same menopause time. So if it was down to the menopause, the women who had an early menopause should have put weight on earlier in their life than the women who had a late menopause. But actually, they all put weight on around the same age. And so the the researchers said it's actually a myth that it's down to menopause. It's about aging and it's about lifestyle. And there, because it's about lifestyle, you can do something about it. Somebody wrote a review of my menopause book on, on Amazon and said, you know, I believed that I was destined, you know, I, I put on all this weight and I believed I was destined to, to, you know, to just carry it for the rest of my life. And I think she said she couldn't or didn't want to take HRT. And so this was what her life was going to be like. And she read the book and realized, oh, hang on a minute, I can do something about this. Mm -hmm. And so she made some changes and has lost weight and kept it off. So she's really delighted. It was a change in her mental state about what was going on. Because if you believe weight gain is because of the menopause, well, there's nothing you can do about it, is there? Right. And the fact yeah. that you said that in general, the women that were studied gain weight at a certain age and you're talking about lifestyle, then that means we sort of maybe at a certain age, slow down, focus yeah. on other things and we're not as physically active. And then, you know, what surprised me, too, is how many people gain weight during the pandemic, even people that knew about lifestyle. Um, you yeah. know, we often talk about eating plant based foods on the show. And I was really surprised, including myself, gaining weight. And it was a combination of, you know, either people drinking more or reverting back to processed foods or just feeling, you know, I don't want to say depression because not everybody felt depressed, but we definitely felt moody during that time when we were not as active. Not traveling, not having access to some of the, some of the parks, national parks and, and beaches and whatever it may be. We were traveling less that contributed to weight gain. So 
the lifestyle does play a significant role. What's happening as we age that a lot of that causes us to then slow down? I think one of the things, you know, people as they get older, maybe the kids have grown up and left home. And so you're running around less after them if you have children. You know, there's also tends to be a feeling like, you know, I've worked hard all my life. I deserve a bit of pleasure, you know. Um, let's open another bottle of wine or let's go out for an expensive meal and stuff like that, you know, or, or get a takeaway or something. You know, people start to spoil themselves. And there is a big feeling like now I'm older, you know, exercises for young people, you know, mm. older people, mm. you know. We take it easy. I, you know, I, I know people who laugh at people who take take exercise, you know, as they get older. It's like, why are they doing that? You know, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to prove? That they're still young and fit, you know, that they sort of are mocked for it. Whereas actually, you know, we need to be doing it. It's not vanity. It's about something very real and very important. You know, you just brought up an excellent point. And the fact that we may feel shamed or judged as we venture off into new activities as we age can hold people back. I recently mm. had a conversation with someone much younger than ourselves, and we had completed completed a community walk, my husband and I. And this person said, because we're, you know, we want to encourage people to at least get out and walk because there's still a lot of benefits to being in nature, being outdoors, building community. Mm. Um, it's good for mental health and just gets you moving. And you can still lose a little bit of weight through walking. And so this person came up to me afterwards and said, um, do you like pickleball or have you ever been interested in pickleball? And I said, oh, my goodness. Wow. I was surprised that he would ask me if I'm interested because I am a little bit older and I don't know how people view me right now. But uh, my husband said, she doesn't know what that is. And I said, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, <laughs> and I started describing it. He's like, how do you know this? And I said, because it looks fun. I actually been interested. And so this other young person said, you should, you know, come out. There's this group that meets. And suddenly I'm, my mind is thinking, Jane, outside of the box, outside of what I'm used to doing, yeah, yeah, the regular yeah. routine. And that's because someone else brought it up and saw that maybe I would be interested. And so maybe perhaps we need to include people a little bit more in physical exercises, activities, games that they might be interested in, or maybe they don't know about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Going back to walking, I mean, I was sort of saying, I don't want people to think from what I said earlier that I don't think walking is a good thing to do. I do think it's a good thing. I don't think it's enough. But again, from a different Australian university, they did some research that 3,800 steps a day which actually isn't a huge amount, can reduce your chances of dementia by 25%. And how is that? How is that associated? What is it about walking that reduces our risk for dementia? Do you know the mechanism? I don't think we know the mechanism. I mean, that's, I think that's just from looking, um, you know, statistical looking at what happens to people and, you know, looking at correlations and things and causes. So, you know, I, I mean, some of that, I think, is about getting outside. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be about community. Um, Improving our moods. I mean, there was some lovely research, lovely research which showed that if you, if you were in a bed where you could see the sky in hospital, you recovered faster than if you were a bed, in a bed where you couldn't see the sky. Oh, oh, my gosh. See, I believe in the power of nature. 
So, I yeah, I mean, that's real, pa- you know, yeah. I, I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, it was like statistically significant. You know, they, oh. they did this research and it's like, you know, that's real proof about the power of the power of, of nature. Even if you live in the bit, middle of a big city, have a look at the sky, you know, look mm-hmm. up. If, even if you haven't got plants and lovely stuff around you, you know, if it's good for sick people and helps them recover faster, I'm sure it's good for the rest of us too. As well. That is true. Very yeah. true. So the book that we were just talking about is yeah. titled Menopause, Weight Loss, Live Well, Sleep Well, Stop Hot Flashes and Lose Weight. Yeah. You touched on hot flashes earlier and alcohol. And I will tell you, my listeners know because I talk about this often, but I did stop drinking. I just decided not even one or two glasses of wine is good for me anymore. And you also mentioned earlier that some people can enter that pre or perimenopausal phase as early as, you know, their mid thirties. Yeah. Yeah. I was probably my heavier drinking days were in my thirties. And I remember it's interesting that you're saying this. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking about during those times, especially in my late thirties, I experienced hot flashes and I thought there's just no when I drank. Okay, yeah. not not all the time, but if I drank a lot more, I started to feel hot and sweaty and I didn't know what was causing that. And then I slowed down and then I would have maybe one or two glasses of wine and I started entering that real menopause phase and I would feel from time to time hot flashes either from drinking, which there's a lot of sugar that might be the cause of it, I don't know, or now if I have something with too much oil. And I don't know what it is, but I am whole food plant-based. If I have something that's processed, I will experience, you know, a light symptom of hot flashes right. of something right. happening. Other than that, I am doing really well, Jane. And I think it's lifestyle, like you said. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was interesting because when I went through the menopause, I was um, cycling regularly and I was a whole food vegetarian, not vegan. Mm-hmm. So I was eating, I was eating dairy and cheese and eggs, but I had fairly minimal symptoms of the menopause, fairly minimal symptoms. And at the time, I was just like really pleased and and didn't, you know, just I'm really glad, you know, compared with all these people who are having horrendous times. And it wasn't until I wrote the book that I realised, oh, the reason I had so few symptoms was because I was taking exercise. Because I was eating lots of veggies and and legumes and things. And I think, you know, what the menopause, how women should see the menopause is that the symptoms are directly connected. For most women, there are some exceptions to this, but for most women, they're directly connected with your lifestyle. And so they are messages from your body that your lifestyle is not okay. And if you change your lifestyle, you'll have a better menopause, but also you'll have a better aging because what is right in terms of helping get you through the menopause is also right in terms of getting you to be 60, 70, 80, 90 as well. It's all about feeling comfortable with where we are in life, embracing it, and still allowing ourselves to have that kind of like that inner child come out and enjoy yeah, life. Yeah. yeah. 
especially when you're sort of done raising children, you you're done. There's so much when it comes to the obligations that a woman has when she's raising her family. Yeah. Yeah. And then you reach a phase that you only have like a window to enjoy before the grandchildren <laughs> come. <laughs> but even then, the grandchildren can be a lot of fun. And then you start to get a little busy that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of part of me as I'm going through this phase as well, wants to kind of normalize and embrace menopause for what it really is, is that, you know, we we should feel honored that we can go through this experience that we have been allowed to live this long. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a blessing. It's, I mean, it's very much a transition time. And yeah. and I see it as a, a time of preparation, a time of preparation for the rest of your life. Because what yeah. I found with hot flashes was they were clearly related to stress. So if I was stressed, that's what happened to me. I'd get a really bad hot flash. And mm -hmm. so actually I learned what were the stresses in my life. Like I learned about, you know, how much sleep I needed. Because if I didn't get enough, I'd get a hot flash or I'd have several or all day I'd have them or all night. So it actually helped me fine tune my life by mm. listening to all these signals that the menopause produced for me about how I needed to adjust my life. So I made lots of different adjustments and they've stayed with me. And I think that's why, you know, I'm, I am as healthy and well as I am now. Yes. You know, listening to the body, I one way that I do mm. experience hot flashes in a way is I could be sitting, relaxing, and I'll have a thought, a worry, usually, uh, or something that upsets me. And I immediately feel heat in my head and down yes. my back, yeah. almost like the yeah. cartoons where the fire is coming out or the fumes are coming out of someone's ears from being uh, angry. And then I'll, and, and oh my gosh, it's like biofeedback. I don't know if that's how you would say yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. That's a good word for it. I think it is. That, and, and, and if you start to see menopause symptoms as biofeedback, that's a really good, I shall use that in future. Thank you. As a really good, you know, it's a biofeedback mechanism. If you, yeah. if you see that, then you, you analyze, you react to everything in a completely different way because it empowers you. Instead yes. of like, I'm feeling like this, I've got brain fog, I've got headaches, I've got, you know, I'm getting all these hot flashes, I can't sleep, I'm putting on weight, mm -hmm. you know. That's very disempowering, you know, if it's because of the menopause. But if you feel like these are biofeedback from my body about what I need to do for the rest of my life, then yes. it's a completely different, different ball game then. Yep. Yep. And it allows you to see what you can do about it. Because for sure, yeah. when I have those upsetting thoughts and I, I feel the heat, I acknowledge that and I'll say, wow, that thought really upset me. And then I know sort of what I need to do next if I want to work with my, I have a life coach who's really helping me to heal some of those uh, issues that I've had for a while. So yeah. anyway, moving on, I really want to cover this book, this other book on hacks, 190 yeah. weight loss hacks. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. What was the inspiration behind this book? I know loads of people, particularly women who are successful, all, you know, beautiful, all the rest of it and cannot manage their weight 
and mm. are deeply, deeply stressed by that. And I just got really fed up with all this because I thought there's so much rubbish advice out there about what you need to do. So I decided to write a, write a book and look for the scientific evidence, the evidence about what worked. I was originally intending to do 100 hacks, but it grew and grew and grew. And then I was intending to do, make it 200. But in the end, I made it 190 because I, I decided I was only going to do, do the number that I felt was, was right, that I had the solid information for about, about how to lose weight effectively. And yeah, I mean, it's been really well, re well received. You know, people have told me they've, you know, somebody said, this is a diet I can follow. I've lost. Wasn't a lot. It was something like four pounds in eight weeks, but she said, I haven't been dieting, you know, so that seems to be what's happening to people is they're losing weight. They're keeping it off and it's no big deal because they're trying. So there's different things. Not, not all of them will work for everybody. So what I, what I suggest is people work their way through it and pick out maybe one or two that they like and apply those and see if they work for them. And once they're part of their lives, then to add some more. And mm. there's the references, so you can check the references. I've done lots of scientific references. I mean, there's some really simple things. There's, somebody did some work, for example, on clenching a muscle. So if you're, you know, we all have different things that tempt us, but if, you, if you're in the supermarket and you're like wanting to buy cookies or something and think I shouldn't be buying cookies because I know I'll just go home and eat the packet or I'll eat the packet in the car on the way home. What this research shows is if you tense some muscles, it actually means you are less likely then to give in to the temptation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're in, you're in the supermarket thinking, I want biscuits, I want biscuits. So you could just, you know, clench your fists or um, push your hands, you know, elbows against your side mm -hmm. or something like that. And just that simple act means yeah. you're less likely to you know, to buy that temptation. And there's another, yeah. I mean, there's a, also there was interesting things like, I, I can't remember what the date is. It's something like from 1988 to 2002, I think it was. The average dinner plate size in the US, so up to 2002, grew by 44%, the area of it, mm -hmm. the dinner plate. So if you've got a bigger plate... Wow. You put more food on it, you're more likely to eat the food. You know, plates have grown in size and so has the obesity crisis. And that was like between 1988, <laughs> I think it was, not 2002. I mean, between 2002 and now, I'm sure plate sizes have got even bigger and bigger. Right. So, you know, eating off smaller plates, eating off colored plates can help people eat less. So, yeah. There is mixed evidence about what the what colours work. So what I actually say is try coloured cl different coloured plates, like a red plate or a blue plate, and see which one mm. works for you. You know, just buy a cheap one and see if it works, and right. then you can use it more regularly. Well, so there's lots of very simple things. Mm? Is mindful eating part of one of your hacks? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, I think mindful eating. Eating is really, really important. And the more people are able to do that, mm -hmm. the better. But for some people, 
I think people who have real food problems, mindful eating is just too, it's too difficult. It's too far away from where they are. Mm. So maybe trying some of the other simpler hacks may, may help. I mean, chewing, chewing gum while you're in a supermarket, you, you tend to buy less, less of the sort of rubbish processed food. If you're chewing, yeah. chewing gum as you walk around and doing your shopping. Yeah. There's some really simple things that we know work. Yeah. So you recommend going through the book and seeing which ones kind of resonate with you mm. or seem doable for you. It sounds like yeah. some of those are like biohacks, almost like overriding yeah. our natural tendency uh, to do one thing or the other. Like, for example, the clenching seems like overriding that natural desire that you have or the craving to to purchase yeah. certain foods. I have found that cooking at home, I eat less when I cook at home. Something is happening biologically, physiologically within me when I'm cooking that by the time I sit down and eat with my husband, I usually serve myself less. And he right. teases me and he says, it's because you're eating as you go. And I say, actually, I don't. I don't eat as I'm cooking. I'll yeah. taste yeah. for seasoning, but I'm not eating. So by the time I sit down, my portion is much smaller than his. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just eat less when I'm cooking at home as opposed to when I eat out. Yeah. So for you, that's something that would work. I don't think there's anything that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, so a couple of people have criticized it saying, oh, you should offer a plan. But I, I said, well, I don't, because what I say is everybody's at a different place in terms of mm -hmm. their relationship f with food. So it's a matter yeah. of looking through these 190 hacks, which are backed up by mm -hmm. scientific evidence and finding the ones that like, oh, I could do that. Yeah, I could start to yeah. do that one. That one, that one actually wouldn't be that difficult. Okay, I'll do that one. And you do that and see how you get on. Then you add another one and another one. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I don't know that a plan necessarily works for everyone because then some people have tendencies to go extreme and restrict and diet. And yeah. you and I know that that's not a sol the best solution and it's not healthy when it comes to a long-term healthy yeah. relationship with food. But uh, some people like myself, I don't have a problem if I do do a cookie to say, I'll have the one cookie and I'm done. Um, some people can't how, you know, they may not be able to regulate that and control that as easily. So you have to know yourself and what works for you. But yeah. I still appreciate that you put this book together because it's very resourceful for people. Yeah. And that's the aim yeah. of it, to give people the yeah. resources and then they can plan their own sort of strategy for how they use it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with my listeners? Maybe some accomplishments on your end in terms of weightlifting or exercise or anything else that we haven't talked about? I mean, I love deadlifting, which is where you lift something off the ground for me. I mean, apart from anything else, I cannot think about anything else while I'm doing that. It doesn't matter how stressed, how upset, anything I am. The, the only thing I can do is think about that. I mean, I would say to people, you know, it's never, you're never too old to start, you know, just because you've never been fit in your life. If anything, it's a huge advantage. Mm. You know, my partner, he's been fit all his life. 
And so he's the same age as me. So he's now finding that he's not as fit as he used to be. You know, when he was 20, 30, 40, he was incredibly fit, incredibly fast. He was a, you know, a very good amateur cyclist and did really well. Now he can't perform like he did. But me, who started going to the gym in my 60s, I'm now doing things in my 70s that I never dreamt I would be able to do. <laughs> so there's a huge advantage to starting late. Mm-hmm. That's what I would, that would be my big bit of advice. Get started. I mean, I love that phrase, motion is lotion and movement is medicine. You know, those, the more of it you do, you know, it's a real medicine for your body. I'm sure lots of your listeners are really keen plant-based eating. And plant-based eating is really, really, really important. It's a big bit of that puzzle of how to age well. Mm-hmm. But equally important is is exercise, yeah. doing exercise. Absolutely. So just start. Just do it, as somebody said. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, yeah, as someone said, yes, just do it. You talked about briefly, and I've heard your story, that you were mainly vegetarian, most of your life. And then you made a decision to go fully plant-based. So you're an ethical vegan. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Tell us a little bit about about that. And if you want to give us any tips in terms of recovery foods after a good deadlifting uh, (laughs) program there. Yeah. 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 I became, I became vegan seven years ago. I mean, I'd known for quite some time about the horrors of how milk is produced and how eggs are produced and things like that. But I kept on refusing to consider it. You know, it's like, I'm doing my bit. I'm I'm vegetarian. You know, I'm not eating dead animals. I'm doing my bit. But then seven years ago, I met Jane and Matthew, who are the founders of Veganuary. Veganuary is a, the go vegan in, try ve- go vegan in January. Try going, try eating vegan for one month in January. It's huge in the UK, and it's now starting in Germany. In the US, it's getting better known, and in South America as well. So, and I met them, and you know, it was a sort of bit of a light bulb moment. And I went home and I said to my partner, "I'm going vegan," and he said, "Oh right." I mean, he made no further comment, and I didn't expect him to go vegan either. And then a few days later, I heard him talking to somebody and he said, well, of course, we're a vegan household now. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm only eating up the cheese and cheese and milk and eggs we've got, but then then I'm going to go vegan as well. So mm-hmm. that, that was great. And, and it's just hugely beneficial. I mean, ethically, I, I don't feel compromised. Like, you know, looking back, it's given me a lot of freedom. I mean, people say, mm-hmm. oh, so restricted the diet and stuff. But but I have this huge sense of freedom because because my life feels that much more aligned because I'm not causing that suffering. Mm-hmm. In terms of, of weightlifting and stuff, I do actually have a protein shake, a vegan protein shake after I finish my workout. And then before I, I bike home, which is about four miles so I sit and have my protein shake, say hello to some of the other gym people, and then get on my bike and bike home. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just think, I mean, plant-based food, there's just so much choice and things. And I, I think people overcomplicate it. One of the things I say to people is, if you cook at home, how many different recipes do you have? 
most people actually maybe do five or six things. You know, they do, I don't know, a spaghetti bolognese or something like that. They may maybe make a homemade pizza occasionally. You know, they have just a few recipes that they use over and over again. And I, so I say, well, what you need to do is find the vegan equivalent that, of that or find how you can veganize that. And that's where you start with it. You don't need – somehow people think as a meat eater, they cook, you know, five or six different meals every week, and it's the same five or six every week or maybe a few more than that. But as soon as they contemplate becoming vegan, they say, oh, I need like a, a repertoire of 200 recipes. No, you don't. You just need five or six vegan recipes if you've been functioning before that with five or six meat recipes. Yeah. 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 And it's just getting so much easier. And I think also I, I forgot the percentage um, associated with how often people in general eat out, you know, that they don't cook very often at home. So when yeah. you're just thinking about that, the Western diet or we say here, right, the standard American diet, when you're which living, is sad. Right, <laughs> which is sad, <laughs> when you're thinking of just a regular routine that people have, where they probably skip breakfast, eat out during their lunchtime with their colleagues, and then on the way home, pick up something. Yeah. And then bring it home. They're used to thinking of what am I going to eat today? What, you know, Italian um, burgers, whatever it may be, Chinese food, whatever yeah. people are thinking. So they're used to thinking that every day they have a choice in terms of eating a different meal because they're probably not cooking the the meal. Yeah. Then yeah. you start to think of, you know, transitioning to preparing foods at home and you cannot realistically have that kind of variety at home. It's just too much, but you can get creative with the ingredients that you have. You know, mm. and I'm, and I've had to kind of do that with my husband sometimes where I say today we're leading, we're eating whatever we have in the refrigerator <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not going to cook another new meal. But, you know, you take out the quinoa that's left over from another dish and combine it with what you already have diced tomatoes, onions, jalapenos, if you'd like that and other corn, whatever it may be. And there you have a salad. So it's just about understanding how food works. And understanding how you can simplify, simplify, make these things easier. Just like you said, we might only really enjoy about five or six different types of meals on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah. But uh, it's it's coming back I mean, to the kitchen. Some people go to the same takeaway every day and order the same thing. That's true. And you know, I mean, they don't ha it don't even have five or six different meals. Right. You know, it's like one thing. A lot of people eat the same breakfast all the time. Yeah. So you can find a plant based version of that. Yeah. And by the way, I, I'm familiar with Veganuary. I've known mm. about them for quite a while. And I, I live across a bookstore that is called Half Price. So the books are discounted. I have found several copies of their books. And I usually buy these things and keep them so that I can give them away when it's appropriate. Oh, right. yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. And yeah. I'm familiar yeah. with the fact that they just started a podcast as well. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I did see that you're involved uh, with either their board or as an advisor. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a trustee. A trustee, yeah. that's so it's, right. a, it's, it's actually a, a charity, a not-for-profit. So I'm a I'm, I'm very honoured. I feel to be a, to be a charity. I mean, it's completely changed things in the UK in terms of all all the ma major 
manufacturers and and chains launch new products in January. Mm. There's just now. There's just you know, and they have veganery all over the place. So McDonald's, uh, even the you know companies like McDonald's and so on, they'll launch new vegan products in January. The supermarkets are covered with vegan options for January, you know, try veganuary. It's all over the place. It's just huge in the UK. Yeah. So I'm glad you covered that because I, I, I'm subscribed to the newsletter and I know that every year as they're promoting veganuary, they have this challenge and they ask people to subscribe and you can receive one tip every day for yeah. the month of January. Yeah. I didn't know about the other component, at least in the UK, where these companies are all jumping in and offering vegan options through their launching of new products. So that's exciting to hear. Yeah, I mean, that's really exciting. It was a huge thing when one of the UK chains launched a sausage roll, a vegan sausage roll. Mm -hmm. And it just acres and acres of publicity about it. Oh, my goodness. That's (laughs) awesome. Just uh, because one of the things behind Veganuary is to try and make it easier for people to be vegan, be plant-based. That is true. So that, you know, you can go out with your friends and go to a chain and you'll have a choice of maybe three or four different things. And that's really happening now in the UK. It really is. The momentum, the percentage mm. of people jumping on board is incredible. I hope to say that soon here. I mean, in, in our city, we lost during the pandemic a few plant-based or vegan restaurants, but also right. there's been a launch of new ones. So it's yeah, just, yeah. we're not going away. <laughs> no, no, we are the future. Yeah, we are. We really are. This is awesome. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, getting to know you, Jane. And I just want to make sure that our listeners can follow up with you if they're interested. So would yeah. you tell us what's the best way that they can reach you? And do you want to provide any websites, social media content? Well, I, I, um, if they want to see my gym videos, then Instagram is the place for that. And my Instagram handle is at Thriving Jane. Mm-hmm. So I post, I post gym videos. I post um, bits of advice, um, inspirational quotes, sometimes vegan food pictures as well, things like that. And then I have a blog website where I, I put lots of things about health, happiness, well-being healthy aging, weight loss, all that sort of thing. And that's janethernellreed.com. Okay. And those are both the best ways to contact me. And then, of course, buy my books. Yes, definitely. (laughs) We'll definitely put links on there. And, well, on your website, you can also buy them through there, right? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure having you. I've loved it. Thank you very much, Indy. It's been great. Thank you. So, so, so nice. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. Thanks for listening.